Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've been loving our show, I have a feeling you're going to love our essays and articles over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Our published pieces are written by some of your favorite authors and writers who are willing to open up and share their most transparent and intimate experiences with you. Be sure to check out our most recent article by Carrie Jones about work-life balance and creating boundaries to prioritize your creativity during these times. This article was brought to you by our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts for our essay and podcast series of intimate stories from writers. Head over to 88 Cups of Tea to read Carrie's piece and catch up on the rest of our collection. Now about our podcast episodes, if you've been enjoying our show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. The more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time and thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already left a review. On the show today, we have award-winning author Kelly Yang. Kelly is the author of Front Desk, the winner of the 2019 Asian Pacific American Award for Children's Literature. Her newly released young adult novel, Parachutes, just released this month. And she also has an upcoming book and sequel to Front Desk called Three Keys. Kelly's episode is edited from a live stream that we recorded back in March. Please note that the audio quality isn't as clear as it's pulled directly from our live stream. And sometimes you'll hear some popping sounds in the background, which were notifications from the live commenting during the live stream. But the content is crucial. So don't let the audio quality get in the way. If you would love to watch our full two-hour live-streamed conversation with Kelly, head on over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash kelly-yang. When Kelly and I first connected over this live stream, we immediately jumped into talking very transparently about the experiences we've been having through the Asian American lens. And these are very, very important conversations for our community to hear and learn about as we share what we've been through on the day-to-day. We also get into how she feeds her creativity during this very challenging time, the ways that she's trying to keep herself and her family emotionally healthy, and how she's redefined her self-care. Kelly also shares ways in which we can all help combat the racism, xenophobia, and discrimination towards our Asian American communities surrounding the pandemic. Further in, we discuss her writing journey and her experiences publishing Asian American stories. She gives us a snapshot of her newly released novel, Parachutes, and a glimpse into her research process drawing from personal experiences and gathering stories from other parachute children. We discuss how to determine when you've compiled enough research to jump into your story and how drafting the first few chapters of a story idea before committing to writing the whole book can help you figure out if it's the perfect story for you. And later, Kelly shares some real talk about making an income as a creative her golden rule in life that will inspire you to not give up on your projects. And we get into the step-by-steps of how you can reach your writing goals. Now let's jump right in.
Kelly, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing? Okay, it's been crazy because I actually was in Hong Kong for 15 years. I lived in Hong Kong after law school, and I only recently moved back. And the reason I moved back was because as the pandemic crisis was unfolding and there was a lot of unrest in Hong Kong, I didn't feel quite safe there. And so I brought my kids back to our home in San Francisco, hoping that we were going to maybe escape the turmoil. And now, of course, we are really caught in the middle of the turmoil. All the schools have been closed and it's uh, our family's been separated because my husband is still in Hong Kong. So this is like round two for us and dealing with a lot of you know discrimination and corona racism and all that stuff that's been happening. But also like seeing how I think it's been a lot more, you know, bonding as an Asian American community as a result of this here in the States that I thought was really, really great. A lot of friends just talking and sharing and like FaceTiming each other as we navigate this together. It's been really challenging as a creator just because, you know, with three kids roaming around the house, yeah. I've got like hide in my closet to get any writing done. And then, you know, as an Asian American person, I mean, as the inconvenience factor goes through the roof, there's a lot of hostility and people are really mad. And, you know, I've had people ask me, like, do you have coronavirus? Why are you walking around? It's like, I do not have coronavirus, number one. But like, also, why are you asking me this? Everybody's trying to get through this crisis. We're so stressed out already panicky, anxiety-ridden, you know, my girlfriend being in the restaurant industry and that's our survival, that's our livelihood. It is so difficult. My girlfriend had nearly like a breakdown because it was a really difficult decision to have to basically let go of 20 of the employees. It is heartbreaking. And these are the people who are also supporting their families. And we're trying our best to see what can be done. You know, she has a wonderful flourishing community for her restaurant. And even then, look at how difficult it is to make a living right now on the day-to-day. It's literally her and her business partner. That's it. Holding down the entire restaurant, trying to pull through so they don't have to shut down the restaurant so that hopefully when we come out of this, all 20 employees have a space to come back to ASAP. Right. You know, it's on top of that, like, it's just fighting against comments. Oh, (laughs) You're Asian, you you know, I don't want to go near your restaurant or go near you because I'm likely going to get coronavirus. Or, you know, we're hearing like really nasty words like you chinks brought yeah. this virus yeah. to us. I, we need to figure out what we need to do to not further discriminate and stigmatize all the people who have loved ones in China. Like, yes. you know, I know people who didn't have coronavirus, but were on lockdown for months and like literally could not leave their home for fear of death. That's a really real thing. And so it's been so hard. It's been like heartbreaking to watch. I'm so sorry, Kelly. What do you think are things that we can do as a community? Just as an example, and I'm going to use the restaurant example again, because it's so personal. The restaurant's like going down in flames. Government ain't doing anything. So we're trying to do our best to try and uplift the Chinatown community. Two of us just trying to call out our restaurant friends to come together. Again, because we're stranded. We're trying so hard and we're so exhausted every day just trying to think of 
ideas, brainstorming, how to utilize and mobilize the access and the resources that we do have. We're putting out food. We're putting out me and her. We freaking go to the Chinatown markets, to Trader Joe's, to the local markets, just try to support every market grocery and buy foods, put it together in little packages. So it's donation foods for kids are not getting meals. Elderly seniors are not getting meals. It's like, you got to help your community too. I'm even putting diverse voices of books where I'm hoping, okay, during this time, at least there's a little bit of like a soul nourishment, right? Aside from the food nourishment, we're putting it in front of a restaurant just so that people can have access to free donation stuff. I think it's so hard. And I mean, like I was faced with this. I have a new book coming out in May called Parachute. It's such an important book. It's about Asian international students and they're dealing with crazy amounts of racism and discrimination and how they get through tough times being an immigrant. But, you know, I had almost all of my book events canceled because of this thing. You know, I was supposed to go on this huge tour and it was announced that it was all canceled. So I was just like, what am I going to do? that's your livelihood. This is, this is my livelihood. This is like two, three, you know, years of my life writing it. And also it was 17 years to come up with the courage to write it, you know, so that's been really, really stressful. And yesterday I decided, you know what, I'm going to do something about this. So what I'm doing is I'm giving free online writing classes for teens. Anybody can join on Instagram live. It's Monday, Wednesday, Fridays from 12 to 1230 Pacific time, three to three 30 Eastern time, because I was a writing teacher for 13 years. And also I was a columnist for the South China morning post and New York times. I know a lot about writing. And I think that this is just all these little things that we can do. You know, we don't have any control over the coronavirus. We don't have control over what our government's going to do. We know what we think they should do, but there's nothing we can do to make it happen right now because that's beyond our control. But what we can do is come together as a community, yes. take away the stigma, you know, that Asian restaurants are not safe. That's just complete, you know, baloney. It's ridiculous. It's racism. You know, if you don't want to eat in, fine, order out right? Do the delivery thing. There's so many options we can do to support Asian Americans during this critical time, you know, and it's just heartbreaking to see the amount of blatant racism directed towards us for no reason, you know? We didn't cause this. We're Americans just as much as everybody else in this country is American, and scary time, especially for Asians in America, Asian Americans and Asians in America who came here for a better life. There's always been racism towards us, but now it's, I feel like there's a resurgence and it's refueled. All Asians in this community are getting so much shit right now for something that is completely out of our control. People need to support Asian Americans, yes. you know, during this critical time, you know, buy groceries at the Asian American, like locally owned mom and pop shop, right? Go to your local restaurants, order to go. That's totally safe. Or delivery, you know, buy books buy from Asian American authors. Like now more than ever, we really need to combat this discrimination, this stigma, this racism, because it is hurting us more than the viruses. This yes. discrimination is killing our communities. Yes. While we're talking about this, do you mind if I throw in a listener question? Rachel Lynch actually asked, how during this stressful time do you feed your creativity then? Because you have so much going on and and knowing like how much you're battling, not just what non-Asians have to deal with, but on top of that is the racism. It's so hard 
up until like a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking really like in terms of my book parachutes coming out on May 26th to just kind of give up because I was like, you know, people don't want to hear, maybe they don't want to read a book about Asians right now. Maybe they don't want to read a book by an Asian American mm -hmm. person. Who knows? And I thought, you know, this book is about Asian American students dealing with stuff, dealing with discrimination, dealing with racism, dealing with being far away from their families, being, you know, uprooted and struggling to find their voice and standing up for what they believe is right. So more than ever, we need this book now. Like yes. we need this book. So I am actually, I've decided that I will continue promoting it and I will continue making videos and things and, and doing all these classes and, and I will try to do that because that's an outlet for me you know and as much as I want to like hole up and just hunker down and like hide under my bed until this whole thing is over yes we can't do that we have to face the fact that you know the world really needs to hear our voice right now like yes. now more than ever kind of how I'm dealing with it but it is hard it's really really hard especially with three kids running around the house I mean I had to like hide in my closet to write and I got discovered by a couple of kids <laughs> so I give myself a break it's like you know maybe before I was writing x number of words now I'm you know cutting that by half or whatever so you just do what you can can you give us almost like the last three days of a glimpse of how you've been dealing with your children's schedules to make sure they're feeling good and not lonely or isolated or feeling, you know, feeling like as mothers, emotionally healthy and happy. That's a real thing yeah. and so important. Yeah. And you don't yeah. want them to feel like even more isolated if, you know, if you have guilt of working on your stuff too. Then on top of that, how then do you sneak away to your closet, which I love, <laughs> and get your writing done? Anyone listening in who we have a lot in our audience who are mothers with children to give them any kind of hints or just inspiration. They might just kind of jump off of that and be like, oh, my God, thank you, Kelly. I could do that in my home space, too. You know, first of all, give yourself the allowance to not do everything. It is just not possible right now yeah. to have super amazing, high quality learning going on yeah. all the time at home and still be sane. Let the kids watch some TV every day. It's fine. The world is not going to end if we do that. So they are um, getting Epic from school for free, which is basically they can access any book online. I think anybody can join Epic now for free for three months or something like that. So they have to read during, do, you know, through Epic or they'll do like an audio book or they have to read some books that we have at home. And then they'll do some math for school. So their school assigns them online homework. And then I try to get them to finish that by lunch. And then after lunch, they're writing, they're being creative. They can also draw something. And I just tell them like, you know, my kids are a little bit older. My youngest is seven and she is a pretty easy kid to honestly, it's the older boys that are difficult for the middle one. You know, I check in with him. I say, you got to write this, you know, come back when you have a story and then he'll go and he'll write and he'll have a story. I've also, I also, what I did with my house is I created all these little, almost like cubicles. You know, I bought a bunch of screens from Amazon, like these silk screens. And then I set a section off part of the living room, section off part of the dining room, section off so that we have just more space. And I'm like, yes. this is reading corner. And there's like a beanbag there and books. And oh they have to go God. in it for like 20, 20 minutes a day. Then they can go to the next cubicle. All right. Real talk. Are you realistically able to have self-care for yourself? 
for me, it's like redefining self-care. Like self-care used to be going for a walk with my dog, but I can't, I, my dog's not here. He's still in Hong Kong, so I can't oh, do that. Nice. And I can't really even go for a walk because I'm stuck with the kids all the time. So I redefine self-care as just a call to a friend. So if I FaceTime a friend, I feel so much better because yeah. I can talk through all my problems and then they can talk through all their problems and we both feel so much better. So if I can just like call a friend once a day, that's pretty much the self-care that I want. Like, you know, a glass of wine you oh. know, at dinner. Thank God, still have not run out of wine, knock on wood. You know, I give myself permission to have a glass of wine a day now. I used yes. to have like wine only on like the weekends. My son was like, it's summer the entire year this year. That's what he said. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's just think of it that way, you know? What else? While the kids are watching TV, I go into my, that's why I put a computer in my closet because I can actually have a space where I can yeah. close the door and kind of decompress for like an hour. So when I do that, then I feel better because I can catch up on random emails, which I've just been ignoring so many emails everybody being thrown in these new daily day-to-day -day situations where you realize, oh my God, for survival, what is priority, right? And what I is threw everything into the restaurant, like all of my energy, all of my time to help my girlfriend brainstorm for survival so that her team of 20 over people can have a place to come back to and also physically helping people in the Chinatown neighborhood and feed them yeah. directly. And even hearing your day to day, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, like <laughs> so, so hard. This is going to go down in history. I mean, I was yes. telling my parents, it feels like going through like a war. Like yeah. it really, I told my kids this, I was like, you guys will always remember this time yeah. in your life. And yes. they're going to be like, yeah, this is the time where we could not buy any eggs or milk. <laughs> oh my God, I love your children. Now... With all podcast episodes, we always ask how you first fell in love with storytelling. I've been a writer since I was like six years old. I love, I've always loved writing. There was a time where I was worried I wasn't going to be good enough because I was born in China. And so it was my, you know, English was my second language. So I was worried about that. And, and growing up as, an, as a struggling first generation immigrant, it was kind of really hard and my parents didn't know how to support me, but through the help of my teachers and librarians, I was able to continue nourishing my love for writing. And then I took a weird trajectory and went to law school, but I didn't want to be a lawyer because it was really boring. And then I went and decided to move to Hong Kong to teach kids writing. So I did that for 13 years. I taught teenagers, little kids, all ages of kids. I taught like thousands and thousands of kids how to write. At the same time, I was then writing for the newspaper there, which is the South China Morning Post. And I was also contributing to the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic. So I was always writing, but I became a novelist with this book, Front Desk, which became this runaway best-selling hit. It was such a unexpected, massive book because it's a quiet story about an immigrant girl from China who comes over to the U.S. with her parents and they're managing the motel, a motel in Anaheim, California. And she's managing the front desk because her parents have to clean the rooms. It's very much, much based on my real life. And I grew up working in the motels with my parents and it was really, really hard. 
but there was also a lot of joy and a lot of wonder and like hysterical moments where, you know, people wanted to check out late and thought they could just like boss me around because I was a little kid. It became a huge like New York Times bestseller. I won the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. And the sequel, which is called Three Keys, is coming out in September. So I've really had a, a really interesting and so far like very packed publishing experience so far, but it's been so great, you know, writing our stories. Like I feel like we're at a really interesting time in history where people finally want to hear Asian American yes. stories. Yes. You know, I have so many hysterical, moving, amazing Asian American stories to tell. So I love, I love being in publishing right now. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is so exciting. I cannot help but projecting from my own experiences, our listeners know that I'm in the creative fields, acting being my background, and just a love for storytelling and for storytellers. And I remember when I told my family, my mom specifically, I'm going to be an actor. I want to be an actor, right? After doing one play in high school, she flipped shit. Like, she just was like, nope, that's not happening. You might as well live on the streets. And I remember talking about writing and she's like, okay, that sounds amazing. Very like cool and scholarly, but how are you going to pay the bills? So there was a lot of pushback on my end, but then I kept pushing forward. I was like, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to even take no for an answer. But it took a few years, you know, for them to come around. How was that like for you? I hid the fact that I wrote this book from everybody except my son. I did not tell anyone that I was doing this until I actually got an agent. And I remember going into my husband's bathroom and being like, oh, and by the way, I wrote a book and I got an agent. And he was like, what the hell? Like, when were you going to tell me this? I didn't think it was going to happen. You know, I kind of like thought it wasn't going to happen for a long, long time. I didn't know if I could get the voice right, if I didn't know. And it's so hard, you know, it's so hard to break into publishing and then to break through because there are so many books every year. I mean, my God, there are like tons and tons of books to have to break through, break from all that noise. It's quite a a challenge. So now that I know what I know, I do kind of understand why my parents try to dissuade me. Mm. Um, Because ultimately, you know, if you love something, nothing dissuades you. Because like, you're madly in love with it, right? So no amount of discouragement really worked for me. (laughs) But my parents, they definitely tried. Okay, how are they feeling now? I bet they're proud as hell and they're showing you off like crazy. They're happy, but also, you know, we I come from storytellers. Like my parents, even though they're not writers, they were always telling stories my whole life. Everybody in my whole family, all my aunts and uncles and my grandparents, everybody was always just flabbing stories. You know, did you hear about this person? Oh, and then this happened. Oh, let me tell you what happened to me yesterday. And so growing up in that environment... You know, it is so natural to be a storyteller that what I'm doing is actually not that different from what the rest of my family has always done for generations. And in particular, this book, because it's about our experience managing the motels and so many of the immigrant stories that I grew up listening to are weaved into this book, so many of their friends' stories. So my parents became really, really proud of Mia and her family. It's a beloved book in children's literature. And how cool is it that we have an Asian-American girl on the cover of a yes. book. You know, they don't make us look bad. They made us look good this time. Yes. We look- Do you mind giving everybody like a snapshot of what Parachutes is about? 
So Parachute's about this girl, Claire, who is seven years old. She lived in Shanghai, but her parents wanted her to come to the U.S. to get a private school, high school experience. And so they just sent her. And so she literally parachutes into Southern California and lives in the home of Danny, who's a Filipino girl, total debate star, academic star, really gung-ho on Yale. And Danny is, of course, like, oh, now I have to share my house with this girl. Like, I have to share my space. And I have to share my mom because she doesn't even have a mom here. And so it's a really interesting situation, the dynamics. And these two are navigating all sorts of hard issues. But they don't really both know that the other person is also navigating the same issues. Because there's a lot of sexual misconduct in their school. And so they're kind of dealing with the same things on literally two different sides of a wall you know, in the same house. And only in the end that they come together and realize maybe they can do something about it. But it's a really authentic story about that experience of being an international student and facing all sorts of random comments being thrown at you for being Asian and what that's like and all the parental pressures. Um, You know, Claire's mom wants her to go to great school so that she could marry someone good. Like, it's just like completely crazy stuff that, we have to deal with, unfortunately, as part of growing up as an, as an Asian person, sadly, sometimes. And I sort of talk about all that stuff. But it's a really pacey read. It's really fun. It's hysterical at times and really gut-wrenching at other times. It's real. It's very, very real. You'll feel the sense of like, oh, my God, that really just hit me right in the gut. So this was gathered mostly from what I'm understanding hearing your own experiences A lot of my experiences, I also interviewed a lot of real parachutes for many years. There was a case in LA where these parachute kids got sentenced to jail for bullying. There was like a lot of violent bullying that was going on. Some of these stories and, and some of these cases, you know, we don't really hear a lot about because it sort of goes into the media and then they move on to some other story. But I went and interviewed the community. I went and I went to, to, to the actual school where it happened. And I talked wow. about the kids. I mean, I taught kids for 13 years in Hong Kong who were going to go and become parachutes. So I knew what they were dealing with very intimately. Wow. Okay. I feel like usually when writers are brewing and gathering thoughts and inspiration and research, can you walk us through, if you do remember that exact moment where you're like, I'm ready to take that step and put it on paper. I think it was like in 2018 or maybe 2019 that I started writing it because I actually really wanted to write an article about what happened. That's why I went to the school and I went to interview a lot of these people. I wanted to write a longer piece but like an article for a newspaper or something. But then as I was talking to people and seeing the different layers of the story, you know, it's not just the parachutes. It's the people who look after the parachutes, the people who have restaurants that depend on the parachutes. It's it's the school, like that, that pipeline. I was just like, oh my God, this is a whole fascinating world. And this story would be better told in a novel format, like a novel. It really is a novel rather than an article. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm just going to try to write a few chapters which is what I often do is I write a few chapters and see where the story takes me, if I like the characters enough to keep going. Mm. And then I really, really, really liked it. I thought it was so fun and so much catharsis to just 
get it out there. All my friends living in Asia and seeing a lot of the crazy rich Asian. I mean, it, it was nuts in Hong Kong. Yes. It really is a lot like in the movie, but also there are parts of that story that were just not, not explored. A lot of the children's pressure, a lot of the, you know, the privilege and the price of that privilege, what happens and the loneliness and the, you know, the, all the sort of turmoil that a lot of kids were going through. Using Parachute as an example, what were the chapters that you first worked on and which were the characters that really pulled you in and just wouldn't let you go and, and was like, you must finish this story? So I love the idea of having it be a dual narrative. Claire's perspective, she's obviously the parachute, but also Danny who has to live with her. And it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to live with this total stranger now in my house because my mom really needs the money and she rented out our guest room. <laughs> so I just played around with writing from Claire's perspective, all the pressures that she was going through living in Shanghai, why her parents want to put her in a random school in California, why they would want to send her her dad has a mistress, so she has been dealing with, like, a lot of shit in her life, like, in her, at home, even though it looks really picture-perfect from the outside, and they live in a beautiful house, and they have, like, a really nice, you know, really, she has, like, a fabulous closet full of, like, amazing clothes, but day-to-day -day was, like, painful for her. So she, you know, was going through this whole thing and navigating, like, should I go or should I not go? And then Danny, she was like totally on the track to go to Yale, but then her debate coach starts hitting on her, you know, and she needs debate to go to Yale, but like, how do you navigate this guy who's like now being really inappropriate, but you don't want to quit the team, but you don't want to put up with this anymore. But also you don't want a bad recommendation letter because you your whole livelihood depends on it. And she's a single mom is really, really poor. You know, they're both of them clean houses. It's very, very hard. Immigrant life, just like the way I grew up, really hard. And so what do you do in that situation when you are a scholarship student? You're, you are depending on the school to like you, but one of your teachers is being completely inappropriate towards you. How were you able to approach that? I mean, if you feel comfortable to share where that inspiration came from and how you're able to work through those scenes, making sure that you are protected emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, that's why it took me a lot of time to think about whether I want to write it or not and yeah. find the courage. I've definitely had like horrible experiences happening to me. And, you know, I really wanted to like, just pretend it didn't really happen, move on, it's okay. And that's part of the reason why I moved to Hong Kong was to kind of get away from all the stuff that happened to me in law school, you know, in college, whatever. But then I realized that you can't really ever escape those feelings. Like you can try to hide them, but it's just, it always comes up. Every time I read about Harvey Weinstein, it comes up. Every time I read about Me Too stuff, it just comes up. And so I decided finally that I was going to write a story and turn it into art, turn it into something positive so that I can maybe help the next generation of girls going through something like that. Or boys, you know, a lot of boys actually um, still face sexual misconduct, whether it's at, at home or in the schools or whatever. So yeah, that's kind of how I approached it. And once I gave myself permission to tap into those feelings, it was wonderful. It was a healing process. I'm, I'm so happy that I wrote this book. It is a brutal read. It is going to be heart-wrenching completely. Like, you're going to be like, oh, my God, this is, this is, I can't believe this is happening. But then in other ways, it's, it's really, you know, honest in terms of that teenager experience of going through something hard. 
So I can only assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were very private about the things that done to you with putting out your story, but also what's going to come from that in your personal life. How was that for you? It was something that I had to do with my immediate family. But more than anything else, I think just being able to finally talk about it is also really liberating. I'm like, you know, I'm not ashamed of what happened. It just, yeah. it did. It's not something that like I caused. So I really wanted to put this book out there. You know, this book, it, it is such a layered explanation of the Me Too movement because you can see all the different people involved in rape culture. And it's not just the guy and the girl. It's everybody. It's like the administrators in the school that are protecting the brand of the school. It's the parents who are like, oh, maybe you shouldn't say something about this. It's like the friends who are like, oh, my God, you're going to have to, you maybe you should just switch schools or like just move on or whatever. Right. So it's a lot of people playing a role in rape culture. And we often just look at the two people, the girl and the guy. And often we just look at the girl and we go like, well, why did you, how did you lead him on? Which is just unbelievably offensive. Yes. Horrible. Yes. So I wanted to really detailed, nuanced look into this movement, into what is happening with the reckoning of Me Too, really having people understand all of our responsibilities, make sure this doesn't keep happening that this is going to go, this is going to get better for our next generation. So in so many ways, I'm just really excited. You know, I'm sad that a lot of events are getting canceled because of the COVID-19 stuff. Yeah. I was really looking forward to going all over the nation to talk about this book. But I really hope that through the online stuff that we're doing and communities coming together, like, you know, with you guys, with you know other Asian American communities coming together, that people will still pick up the book and recognize the importance of it. I'm so excited, Kelly. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Let's wrap it up with a few rapid fire questions. So the first one is money, real talk, finances for creative people and authors. Oh my God, so stressful. Like <laughs> yes. I was just telling my Asian, I was like, do you know how expensive eggs are? Yes. <laughs> well, if you can support other people, let's do it because it's so hard. Everybody is suffering and yes. it's just, terrible time right now. Don't be afraid to stock up on not just supplies, but also, you know, craft stuff, books, movies, like all these things that are supporting entire industries and creative individuals. Thank you. I appreciate your transparency about that. Next one is, what is the best advice you've ever received? If you were a mentor, what is one advice you'd share to your mentees? And imagine all of our listeners being your little baby mentees. That's so funny because in this book, Mia's best friend gives her the advice, which is you can't win if you don't play. And I write that in every single copy of Front Desk that I sign. I write, you can't win if you don't play. Yes. And I, that's my rule. It's my golden rule in life. It's just, just try, go for it. You, you can't, literally cannot win if you don't play. Okay, next one, super quick. How was your journey getting a literary agent? You know, I wrote a book before this one, which was really hard for me to get an agent on. But for this book, I got an agent really fast. I don't know why, but I did have to switch agents. I really wanted to work with 
my current agent, Tina Dubois. She's a wonderful woman. She's a single mom. I love her to pieces. So I really wanted to work with her. And so I had to switch an agent, <laughs> basically. Oh, yeah. Well, congratulations on being with the agent that you were wanting. So congrats on that. That's a huge deal about who's in your team. Okay, manageable steps you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals. And let's apply it to what we're going through right now. I would say set a manageable goal for yourself and don't try to do everything at once. Just sort of put your blinders on. Like I cannot control everything in one go. I can't control the sales of this book. I can't control the sales of this book. All I can do is focus on my current project that I'm on. And then if you just do that and you do, and you try your hardest to write the best goddamn book you can, it will all work out. It really will. This was a book that, Front Desk was a book that was acquired for like pennies by Scholastic. It had like almost no marketing, literally like no one really even knew about it until it was published. And then it just took the world by storm. I mean, it became a New York Times bestseller, which is just so hard for a debut novel. And it was really completely organic. I'm not lying. I was living in Hong Kong at the time, so I couldn't even do any events. It was like almost impossible for me to do face-to-face events. And so everything that you hear about the front desk is completely organic word of mouth. And I remember being really stressed out about it at the time, just going, oh my God, you know, how am I going to support this book? You know, there's not a ton of marketing. It wasn't a book that had a lot of ads. There were no bookmarks, there were no posters, none of that. And I remember it coming out and I like would go into my bookstore and I couldn't even find it sometimes. This was like, you know, it was so such early days. It wasn't, it just wasn't a big splashy launch the way that a lot of books are. Right. And it has to do with the way the publishing industry works. If they don't put a lot of money into the advance, there's really no, they don't need to make that much back. So they have other books that they're going to prioritize for marketing. So I remember being super stressed out about it. And I remember thinking this book really has, no chance to break out. But I was wrong because it's an amazing story. And that's the thing is that we underestimate people's ability to recognize good stories. And actually, no matter how much marketing you put behind something, it can never beat that organic word of mouth. mouth. So in my, in my experience, all you have to do is focus on your task at hand. Don't think about all this other stuff. Just don't think about it. It will work out. Were you able to utilize social media? I did as much as I could in terms of social media, but because I, number one, was living in Hong Kong, so I didn't really live in the U.S. I didn't really know anyone. I didn't have the big community friend groups that could buy the book. You know, I knew like five people and that was it. So it was really completely because strangers, mostly librarians, like amazing, amazing community of librarians, picked it up, read it, and thought it was a great story that needed to be out there. And it is. It's a story that we all need about a really resilient girl in times of really hard, hard, horrible times, like hardship. And that has actually calmed me so much. Like I'm like stressed out so much about parachutes because it's coming out in May and now we're in the coronavirus. And yes. Oh my gosh, this is going to just affect everything. But I always have to think back to that, which is just we can't control the things we can't control but we can absolutely do the best job we can writing the story. Okay, this is amazing. Now, what is a book, craft book, or fiction, memoir, or even TV shows and movies that have really impacted you and your writing and your creativity? I love this book called The Magic Words by Cheryl Klein. 
She was my original editor for Front Desk. She was the one who bought this book. I mean, she was the only editor who wanted it. We submitted it to like 15 editors. and Every single person rejected it except for Cheryl at Scholastic. So huge shout out to Cheryl. And I'm so indebted to her. But she is an amazing editor. She edited, among other things, Harry Potter. And so she wrote a book about how to write if you're writing children's novels. But I think her advice applies for really all novels. And it's called The Magic Words by Cheryl Klein. And it's like, in my opinion, like a Bible for writing for kids. Amazing. Okay, well, shout out to Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl, for recognizing these crucial stories that need to be out there. Thank you. Thank you for writing it, Kelly. All right, tell everybody where they could find you online on social media to find out all the information, keep updated and to support you and to say hi. I'm on Twitter at Kelly Yang HK on Instagram at Kelly Yang HK and then online at kellyyang.com. And that wraps up my conversation with Kelly Yang. Kelly, thank you for being so vulnerable and having such an important, eye-opening and inspiring conversation. Thank you for all that you've done and thank you for all that you continue to do. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Kelly on Twitter and Instagram at KellyYangHK. To find a link to our full two-hour live stream conversation and all of the resources and books mentioned in today's episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Kelly's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Kelly-Yang. I want to give a special shout out and heartfelt thanks to our incredible 88 Cups of Tea editor, Andor Sperling, who took the time to review and listen through the entire two-hour live stream, pulled the audio, and cut it down to make it into a succinct episode for our entire community to listen into. Thank you, Andor. We so appreciate you, and we're also lucky to have you as a part of our team. Storytellers, if you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers, and if you'd love to experience what it's like to be a part of our community in an active way, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your huge wins for the week, along with recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole ton of gifs in there. So if you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. I hope you'll find moments of peace and rest during this time. And I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>